Good morning. Let's do a show. Good morning. Hey, is it working? Yeah, it's working. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hope you all are doing well. It is Wednesday. This is Just Human number 192. We have absolutely nothing to talk about. Nothing is happening in the world at all, um, especially not superseding indictments or Durham fake news or Epstein news or crypto news or anything else. It's so boring out there. Um, but I found a couple things that I want to talk about today. And I want to get right to it. I want to get right to it because I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to get through uh, everything that I want to get through. First up. Manhattan grand jury investigating Trump will not meet this week. Huh? Huh? Seems like somebody was saying last week that. It might go exactly like this. Bragg's DA may uh, cancel the grand jury meeting a few times in a row. And then suddenly the grand jury ends with no indictments. Hmm. Sources report the Manhattan grand jury investigating Trump's alleged hush money payments in 2016 will not hear the case for the remainder of the week. The jury met on Monday, but did not take a vote on whether to indict the former president. Well, I think that's because the former president isn't actually their target. Um, I still, I still think that, uh, it's, as funny as it is 
for uh for us to say that to make fun of all the people who think the walls are closing in. I still think that this grand jury isn't actually targeting president Trump and that that is all fake news. I think it's targeting someone else. And I was looking at some of the people that have been involved with uh stormy and, and Cohen and others along that are just in this, this network, this, this, uh, this little constellation of, of people. And I noticed that one of the people that that did testify yesterday, allegedly, is a guy who used to, was it the National Enquirer maybe he was the boss of, that he testified. And I just got this feeling that their target isn't Trump, but the fake news wants it to be. And they're just letting that letting that be the public face of it, that it's alleged that it's about Trump. But I, I, I just get the feeling it's not. But either way, I'm not worried about it. I think it's hilarious that the left has been dragged into um, thinking that Trump is about to get diet every day now. And all over again, like they just keep following for the Matador's cape. And I think it's hilarious. So, but no, no grand jury meeting for the rest of the week. Who knows if they'll meet again? It may just end, and then uh, that'll be the end of it, and we can all laugh about it. Next. A judge has largely rejected Donald Trump's effort to block Mike Pence's testimony to the January 6th grand jury. Sweet. Federal judge has to be Bozberg, the guy who replaced Howell. Federal judge has ordered former Vice President Mike Pence to testify in the federal probe of Donald Trump's bid to subvert the 2020 election, according to a person familiar with the ruling. This is all secret stuff. So we're just getting people that are familiar. So it's defense attorneys uh, leaking to uh, news media or people within the circle of Pence or Trump that are leaking these these things to the media. Judge James Bozberg largely, largely rejected... <laughs> okay, I'll try again. Judge James Bozberg largely rejected an effort by the former president to assert executive privilege over Pence's testimony, but Bozberg, the chief judge of the Federal District Court in Washington, agreed, at least in part, with Pence's legal team that the former vice president enjoys immunity from testifying about certain topics due to his role as president of the Senate on January 6, 2021. It was not immediately clear whether Bozberg's ruling, which remains under seal, is broad enough to satisfy, satisfy Pence's public resistance to the subpoena, which was issued by Jack Smith, or whether he intends to appeal. Pence has indicated he is, he's open to answering certain categories of questions related to Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election despite losing the race to Joe Biden, allegedly. But he has argued that the vice president's unusual role with a top member of the executive branch and president of the Senate entitles him to immunity typically afforded to members of Congress. He has indicated he's willing to take the fight to the Supreme Court if he doesn't like the outcome. 
It's a complex argument with extraordinary ramifications, both for the investigation into potential crimes by Trump and his bid to seize a second term and for the separation of powers that define the federal government. Just go ahead and keep your we're at, we're reading Politico. So have your filters on and don't react to the way they phrase things. Pence's argument has been largely untested in courts, but the Justice Department has, on at least three occasions, argued that vice presidents should enjoy so-called speech or debate immunity that largely protects members of Congress from answering in court for their legislative acts. Pence did not adopt Trump's separate argument that his assertion of executive privilege bars Pence's potential testimony. Multiple courts courts have rejected claims of executive privilege and attorney-client privilege amid his efforts to prevent witnesses from testifying before Smith's grand juries. One of those grand juries is probing Trump's handling of classified records he retained at his Mar-a-Lago estate after leaving office. Legal scholars generally agree that Pence has a legitimate case that his role as president of the Senate may warrant immunity from testimony sought by the executive executive branch. The federal appeals court in Washington is expected to rule imminently on a separate effort by rep Scott Perry to cite the Constitution's speech or debate clause to prevent Smith from accessing his cell phone data. U.S. District Court Judge Beryl Howell, who handed the chief gavel to Bozberg earlier this month, rejected most of Perry's claims in a December ruling she recently unsealed. Notice how it says the way it frames it here. Pence did not adopt Trump's separate argument. The way I see Trump and Pence, and I, I made this case when, uh, like last week, I think I, I see Trump and Pence working together here. And I'm just going to point it out again. Like I, I like to, when I have the opportunity that Pence could just go along with this and totally torpedo Trump on right here. Pence could just take these subpoenas, walk into the grand jury and use this as an opportunity to uh, damage Trump. He could speak about, he could, he could testify about, um, he doesn't even have to like lie. He could just like characterize things in a way that would um, do damage to Trump in some way, because after all, Pence is supposedly running for, supposed to be running in the primary. Wouldn't he want to damage his political opponent in the pro- ahead of the primaries? If Trump and Pence really have this feud, why is Pence fighting this stuff? If Trump and Pence really have this feud and are no longer on speaking terms or whatever, then why isn't Pence doing absolutely everything he can to make sure Trump takes the fall for January 6th? We don't see Pence doing that at all. Instead, what we see is Pence fighting alongside Trump against these grand jury subpoenas, and they're both using separate and they're using separate arguments. They could Pence could use his argument that he has for speech and debate clause and Trump's executive privilege argument, right? He could argue both. But instead, what's happening is Pence is taking one angle of it, Trump is taking another angle. And they're forcing the judge to rule narrowly or to narrow down what Pence can be required to testify about, whether it's his like his like the speech and debate clause protects him in his role as president of the Senate during the joint session, 
but he has to answer questions about other things related to J6. Um, Trump is using executive privilege, which he hasn't been that successful with, but I don't think he means to be that successful. I think what Trump and Pence are both doing is that they are making sure to establish precedents and to cut out a template for what former presidents and vice presidents can be required to answer in front of grand juries. It's unprecedented that we have former presidents and vice presidents being called before grand juries to answer questions about an event like January 6th or an or election fraud. Um, we've never had this happen before. It's everything that's happening in relation to this is unprecedented. And I think Trump and Pence are working a, a a planned operation. I think they have a plan as to how they're going to fight these things and what arguments they're going to make in order to force the courts to narrow down what can and cannot be required of former presidents and vice presidents and other officials, such as president's lawyers, chief of staff, such as Mark Meadows, national security advisors, like everybody. You know, it's like we, we've have, all these people from the Trump administration are being called by Jack Smith in front of a grand jury to answer these questions. And every time they're putting up at least some resistance and forcing the judge to take a look at their arguments of executive privilege and, and other things. And I, I just think that what they're doing here is they're trying to make sure that they're, they are establishing a precedent or a template of what president, their former presidents, vice presidents and staff can and cannot be compelled to do. And when you look at this stuff and you think of it in terms of precedence, when you think of it in terms of how it would apply to them, to other vice presidents and presidents and chief of staffs and lawyers and other people that we would like to see prosecuted for crimes. I think they're very carefully making sure to establish that template that I've talked about so much. I actually don't need to play this clip because I already read the article, but uh, give my friend Misty G a follow on Twitter. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I do want to, Misty G is awesome. Uh, I do want to play what Mike Pence had to say because he had, he had previously said that he was, if he didn't like the ruling from Bozberg, then he was going to challenge this all the way to the SCOTUS and force SCOTUS to rule on the speech and debate clause. Which I wouldn't mind seeing. But I think it was, uh, hey. I think, uh, sorry, I, I think it was Devo117 or MP in uh, my Telegram chat who sent this link to me. Thank you very much. Um, Pence has some comments right here. Mr. Vice President, nice to talk to you again, sir. Uh, good to be with you, Greta. Thank you. Mr. Vice President, the court has ruled that uh, you must testify to conversations leading up to January 6th with the former president of the United States. Do you intend to appeal that order? Well, obviously, Greta, you know there's a limited amount that I can say about uh, those proceedings, but... Uh, but when I received a subpoena from the Justice Department, I said that I thought it was not only unprecedented to ask a vice president uh, to come into court to testify about a president with whom they serve, but I also thought it was 
unconstitutional, believing that the Constitution's speech and debate protections applied to me when I was serving as president of the Senate on January the 6th. So I, I can tell you that I'm pleased uh, that the court uh, accepted our argument and recognized that the Constitution's provision about speech and debate does apply to the vice president. Uh, but the way they sorted that out and, uh, and, and uh, the requirements of my testimony going forward are a subject of our review right now. And I'll have more to say about that in the days ahead. All right. So it's not decide whether to appeal or not, at least at this point. It just happened today that we're learning about it. Is that a fair way to describe it? Well, we're, we're evaluating uh, the court's decision. But again, I, I do want to say that I am pleased uh, uh, that the federal judge really for the first time in history recognized that the Constitution speech and debate provisions do apply to the vice president uh, when one is serving as president of the Senate. But how they sort Right there, you just said it. For the first time, they've ruled how the speech and debate clause applies when the vice president is serving as, in his role in the joint session. Ordered that out, and what other testimony might be required? Uh, we're, we're currently reviewing. But look, I, let me be clear. I, uh, I, I have nothing to hide. Uh, I have a constitution to uphold. I, I upheld the constitution on January sixth. Uh, I believe we did our duty. Uh, that day under the Constitution of the United States. And in this matter, I thought it was important uh, that we stand on that constitutional principle again. But but we're currently speaking to our attorneys uh, about uh, the proper way forward. And as I said, we'll have a decision in the coming days. I think, I mean, I, I don't want to read too much into it, but I kind of I think they uh, will go with this. Even though he's saying we're going to talk with our attorneys and decide how to go forward. I, I kind of think they're going to accept this and just go ahead and testify, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe he wants to take it to SCOTUS. Um, but I, I, I think that this is, this is probably fine. Although I haven't read the ruling, it's sealed. So I, I don't know. Um, I've seen some comments about issues on Rumble with either my audio or stream, hic stream hiccups. Rumble seems fine to me, but I can say that over on Foxhole, it is like, it's basically crashed. Like there's some kind of server problem over there. I remember that, was it last Monday or last week? It was last week. There was uh, some itch, some issues with, um, some, some issues with Rumble, but I can tell you on my end, everything looks really good. So the individual sites may be having issues. I don't know. All right. So yeah, as you guys might expect, I'm convinced that this is going according to plan and I like it. Now this leads into the appearance by Trump on Hannity. And this was an interesting cue proof. Because you had Trump going on Hannity on the 27th at 9 p.m. And he went on Hannity again last night. And then it was an exact delta to two drops from March 27th that all mentioned Hannity. 
Watch Hannity tonight. POTUS may have a few words on the subject. Right there, Hannity in 10. Um, two Q proofs that are two, two Q drops from 2019. Yeah, both from 2019. They mentioned Hannity all on the same exact day. Now, Trump goes on Hannity quite often, so that could be a coincidence. But you also have March 26, 2019. President Donald Trump tomorrow, 9 p.m. on Hannity. Same thing. So that's three connections right there. All right. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, maybe it's a coincidence, but I think it's pretty awesome. And Trump had a good interview with Hannity. Um, this always comes up, but I, I like Hannity. I used to like him a whole lot. And I used to listen, make sure this is like 15 years ago. Now, from like 2002 until 2012, I used to listen to Hannity, um, the first hour of his show, almost every single day. And I liked him very much. I thought the first hour was really, really good because it was just rapid fire information. And I liked it a lot. Um, I was watching Fox news less and less and less like this has been a trend, like what Fox news less and less and less ever since 2002. Uh, but the radio is where I was always listening. Um, I don't really care for Hannity anymore. I just don't like his style and the way he comes off and, but that's okay. Different, different, uh, everybody has preferences. Um, but I do believe that Hannity is a patriot. No matter, no matter what, whether, regardless of whether I like him or enjoy his shows, I still think Hannity is a patriot. And I think Hannity is an ally in this, uh, this, this info war. Um, and I think he serves a purpose. So, I like, I like that comment I just saw from Michelle. Yeah, good morning, Michelle. She says, it doesn't matter if we like Hannity. I I totally agree. Um, so Trump went on Hannity, and he had, a, he, had a, he had a few interesting things today to say. Here's one of them. And a lot of people, political people, said, sir, never bring that subject up. The voter doesn't care about that subject. But I do, and I think people do care about loyalty. When you help somebody... Really help him. I mean, get him. And then he announces that essentially he's going to run against you. That's what he announced. Because when he said that, that means to me that you're going to run. Right. And he's going to run, but he's getting crushed now in the polls. <laughs> I want to play it again. And... A lot of people, political people, said, sir, never bring that subject up. The voter doesn't care about that subject. But I do. And I think people do care about loyalty. When you help somebody, really help them. I mean, get them. And then he announces that essentially he's going to run against you. That's what he announced. Because when he said that, that means to me that you're going to run. And he's going to run, but he's getting crushed now in the polls. So that gets us into the conversation about DeSantis. And I want to say that 
I am still 51% certain that the the Santis and Trump thing is kayfabe. 51% certain. And which is not certain at all. But I think an inflection point is coming up this summer with whether or not he announces in time. And he's he's said there's a lot of groundwork being laid. Reportedly, there's a lot of groundwork being laid for DeSantis to run. Um, offices in various states and traveling around to the right primary states and uh, all these different things. And I'm hoping that sometime in, I think it would, I think he has to announce by June, but I don't remember exactly. I'm, I'm hoping that what happens is DeSantis doesn't run and he waits to the very last minute to announce that. And he basically rug pulls all the people that are throwing money at him. And he endorses Trump. But my concern is that he's been bought off by the big money donors in the GOP establishment. And he won't do that. But what I have noticed and what is becoming a trend is that the more Trump attacks him, the more the conservative incorporated media and influencers try to say that Trump is damaging himself and shouldn't attack DeSantis and Republicans shouldn't treat each other this way. And Trump is just, He's he's afraid of DeSantis challenging him and like all these sorts of comments and that Trump is actually I even see them argue that Trump is a uh, that MAGA voters don't like it that Trump is attacking DeSantis and and Trump is actually hurting himself. Um, But the more Trump attacks DeSantis, the higher Trump goes up in the polls. And the lower DeSantis goes. And I think. I think his attacks on DeSantis are very, very effective. Um, I, I, you know, I can't help but notice that the people that DeSantis is paying to try and promote him just keep getting destroyed in their comment sections over them promoting DeSantis. Um, it's like the more they try and push DeSantis, the worse it is for DeSantis and for them. And, I kind of wonder if that's the point. Like, um, it's it's interesting to watch. It's interesting to watch Pe- people. Um, the conservative incorporated people continuously misunderstand MAGA and Trump, and it's fun to watch. So I'm I'm willing right now, I'm willing to believe either way with DeSantis. Um, what I am sure of is that Trump knows exactly what he's doing. Um, and yeah, I, I think uh, I lean towards kayfabe, but I'm prepared, I'm prepared for it not to be. And what if DeSantis does announce that he's running, it's his, his political career is over. His political career is over. It would be absolutely suicide for him. He'll get destroyed by Trump even more so than he already is being destroyed by him. And he won't be reelected to any office in Florida or any other state. 
He'll be absolutely destroyed. It doesn't make any sense for him to challenge Trump. That's another reason why I lean towards it being kayfabe, because I'm like, surely DeSantis isn't that dumb that he's going to challenge Trump, because it's going to, it's not going to end well for him. I don't worry about the other people challenging Trump, like Pence and Pompeo, because I think they're going to get in the primary, and there's going to be there's going to be some, you know, some words exchanged between them and Trump and, you know, it could get nasty for a while, but I think they end up running with low support and then they drop out and endorse Trump, you know, after five to 10 primaries go by. Uh, and I don't think it damages them that much because I think they endorse Trump and then campaign for him and Trump rehabilitates them basically that he, you know, like I can picture Trump, uh, Trump and Pompeo having it out a little bit on stage and in the media. And then after Pompeo endorses Trump, Pompeo going around to some visits with Trump and some campaign stops and Trump being able to rehabilitate Pompeo in front of the MAGA crowd and just reference all the great things that Pompeo and Trump worked on together while he was secretary of state and in the CIA. So I can like picture them like MAGA pretty quickly coming back around on Pompeo um, after, after he goes right back under Trump's wing, you know, Um, I have a hard time picturing that with DeSantis. There's a, there's something about it that it's like a real inflection point for DeSantis as to who he actually is. So, Misty G again. Now, this time I do want to play her clip. I've watched Democrat senators get on television and say, I can't believe that. Are you serious? I don't believe that. I've known you for decades. I can't can't imagine you ever saying, "Um, bring me some of the boxes that we brought back from the White House. I'd like to look at them. Did you ever do that? I would have the right to do that. There's nothing wrong with it. But I know you. I don't think you. Hannity, listen carefully to how Hannity approaches this. I think Hannity actually like made a misstep. I think Hannity is like his approach to this topic is kind of defensive. It's kind of he's like trying to defend Trump on the issue, but Trump doesn't need defense on the issue because as president and former president, he has every right to access these things. Senators get on television and say, I can't believe that. Are you serious? I don't believe that. I've they known didn't you even for decades. I can't, I can't imagine you ever saying, um, bring me some of the boxes that we brought back from the White House. I'd like to look at them. Did you ever do that? I would have the right to do that. There's nothing wrong with but it. But I know you. I don't think you would do it. Well, I, I don't have a lot of time, but I would have the right to do that. Right. I would do that. There'd be All right, let me wrong. move on. Let me Remember it. this. Yeah. This is the Presidential Records Act. I have the right to take stuff. Do you know that they ended up paying Richard Nixon, I think, $18 million for what he had? They did the Presidential Records Act. I have the right to take stuff. I have the right to look at stuff. But they have the right to talk, and we have the right to talk. This would have all been worked out. All of a sudden, they raided Mar-a-Lago, viciously raided Mar-a-Lago. I have tape, and I gave them tapes. You know, I gave them tapes of storage areas. I gave it to them. I could have held that back. I wasn't holding anything back that I cared about. I gave them tape. But you know the tape they don't want me to reveal? If possible, they've asked me, and I've, I've 
so far adhered to it. The raid itself. All right. I, I should have paused it earlier. So I, I just felt like Hannity approached it like he was trying to defend Trump on these things. And Trump was like, no, 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 no. I don't need the defense of I wouldn't have done that. I had the right to do it. I had the right to have access to these things. These are my records. And um, Hannity says after he Trump is Hannity's like, okay, I'll move on. I think it's because Hannity didn't set it up correctly or something. So, like it just didn't work right there. But Trump wants to make the point that no, I had every right to access these documents and to have these documents. I didn't do anything wrong. And then he goes on to talk about the tapes. And remember that media didn't pay that much attention to it. And media didn't know until Trump said so that before the Mar-a-Lago raid, the FBI had visited Mar-a-Lago and took a look around. I mean, recommend recommendations on locks. And they ask, they ask um, Trump for uh, security footage. And they turned all that over. Those are the tapes he's talking about that he had turned, that he had already turned over and given to the FBI. Um, and then they get into, he starts talking about he has actual tapes of the raid itself. Wait a we minute. Have, I'll take that tape I know and I'll would. air that tape. Everybody would take that tape. Well, I'm asking first. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I have tape, but they think yeah. it might be dangerous because of the faces and everything else. And I understand they that. They get pixel amount. But I have tapes of the raid mm. and the raid is terrible. And the way they treated people. He does, he's not going to release the tapes. And I said this. Um, six months ago, Trump is never going to release the tapes of the raid on Mar-a-Lago because he's not going to put the FBI agents who conducted it at risk. One, two, he's not going to give away that security information on Mar-a-Lago where the surveillance cameras are and things like that. And three, he's not going to reveal the skiff. He's not going to reveal tapes that show that there's a skiff at Mar-a-Lago. So, It'll never come out, but he's still going to hold that tape out there um, just as a tool that he can use to make these talking points. Is terrible. And the way they treat people now is unbelievable. They ask innocent people, please go in and blah, blah, blah. But, that, but this is getting but the John, what they The way they treat people, they treat people like they're a foreign country enemy. And coming up. And he, and he really leans into it. He likes to, he leans into this idea that the raid was terrible. They, it was such a mistreatment, blah, 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 blah. And so horrible. And no, no, the raid, the raid was exactly what it should have been. Uh, I don't, I don't buy this. They tore this up and they destroyed all this. And, um, no, I, I think it was absolutely planned and Trump was in on it. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Y'all know what I think about that. I put it all in this article. All right, let's talk about Durham. By the way, um, if you like the show, hit the thumbs up over on rumble. And, uh, if you want to support the show, the links to do that are in the description on rumble justhuman.substack.com, buymeacoffee.com slash justhuman, bensonhoneyfarms.com, repcode justhuman. 
Um, all those things in the description. Yeah, somebody mentioned classified. Jason, good morning. He said, or they're classified. Yeah, well, the tapes, it would make sense that the tapes of mar security tapes of Mar-a-Lago would be classified. It's a former president's residence, and he's got a skiff in there. Um, and he's also a DOJ asset. So, yeah, I think it's I think it would be it classified. I still find it so interesting that the FBI requested tapes of the store of the storage of these documents. Um like it makes it makes me wonder if like there actually was somebody who managed to get access to these things and Took, I'm trying to think about why they would need security cam footage of the storage area and the office. Like, I'm guessing they want to see who was going in and out during a certain time period. Um, if any of those people took things. Um, wanting to confirm dates that certain boxes were put into the, the um, storage or into the skiff or into the office. Um, it's just interesting that they, they wanted those surveillance footage footage. And it's also interesting that they wanted to change the locks. Now, I don't think we're actually talking about a traditional key in the lock. I think we're talking about sophisticated locks. Um, I'm not sure. It could also be a cover story for them going in and upgrading Trump's skiff because that has to be done. Skiffs have to be, you have to update software and other things. So it could be a cover story for some people going in and saying change the locks. But actually what they did was they went in there and they, they updated his skiff um, and caught, said they were changing locks, but really what was going on was the skiff was being kept up to date. So it could still be used to do what it does. Um, not sure. Okay. We had something that isn't fake news, but it's weird. It's, I don't know about weird. It's intriguing. For some reason, John Solomon, who is a very smart man, reposted an article that is literally from a year ago. And he posted it on Twitter and on um, True Social. He may have posted it other places. But it's this article right here. Durham bombshell. Prosecutor unveils smoking gun FBI text message. Joint venture to smear Trump. And I saw this and I was like, what? Durham made a new filing somewhere? What is this? What is this? And I started reading it and I was like, this reads like it came from last year and then filing on Monday night, but the article came out Monday morning. What is, what is he talking about? I started looking, I was like, this is old. This is from April 4th of 2022. So I was like, I don't know why John Solomon reposted this, but he did. And I didn't see a comment from him that he was doing it that he did that. And it says updated March 27th on there. So I went and found the original article and it was published April, April 5th. 
and this is the original. And I started comparing the two articles to see what changes there were. Now, if it was any other news outlet, I wouldn't have been as intrigued by it. I may still have done this to see what they changed. But with John Solomon, I have, there's a unique, well, I'm uniquely intrigued by John Solomon because he is mentioned in the Q drop so much. Uh, If you search Solomon, you'll get 12 posts, but then there's also acronyms with him that say JS, I believe. Um, So a dozen or more times Solomon is referenced in the drops. And so I kind of look at him and think, okay, Solomon, Solomon is pretty, of course, this one right here is wrong because it's the Solomon Islands is what they're referencing. There's also a drop about Solomon being protected. And let me see if I can show you that one. I didn't think about it, but I will. I will find it real quick. If you search JS, you're going to get 43 um, returns. But there is a drop about John Solomon being protected. Right there. Surveillance of SCJS terminated. Sleep well. And it's talking about John Solomon. That he was under surveillance and uh, like by not good people. And that the Q team came in and took care of that. So I pay it, I pay attention to John Solomon. And I mean, he does good reporting, of course. And he's also Trump's designated representative to NARA right now. And we talked last week about how John Solomon sued for... Um, Trump's records that he declassified related to Crossfire Hurricane. So what John Solomon does, I pay I pay attention to. There's been a number of times when he has gotten advanced information. Um, and so I started comparing the articles. The first thing I noticed was that the original article was missing a link to the Durham filing. So that's been corrected and it was added in. This is a side-by-side comparison. The uh, old one on the left, the new one on the right. There was an error in this sentence right here. The prosecutor noted in house testimony a year later, Sussman admitted he did the FBI approach. (laughs) Sounds like Yoda wrote it. He did the FBI approach. Um, So, That sentence got reworded so that it was correct. And then the end of the article is what really stands out to me. There's a lot, there are several changes here where he reworded sentences and added, just kind of changed it up a little bit. It still has the same meaning. It still says the same thing, but it got, it got treated differently. Um, like a different copy editor went in and cleaned it up. But really stood out is this paragraph here. This got changed and it really didn't need to get changed. Um, Actually, this one didn't need to either, but they both got a, a new treatment. Um, 
But this one right here really stood out to me because of the in sum the special counsel concludes. The above evidence public information expected testimony clearly establishes by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant, Debbie Sussman, and Tech Executive One, Joffe, worked in concert with each other and with agents of the Clinton campaign to research and disseminate the Russia Bank One allegations of the Alpha Alpha Bank. They didn't need to change that. I mean, it literally says the same thing here, right? So they they came back into this article and they added in the special counsel concludes. So I'm like, huh, they, why did they feel the need to come in and add that instead of the way it was, it was worded right here? And I just kind of got the feeling like my mind wonders if a joint venture conspiracy indictment is about to drop. The evidence of a joint venture or conspiracy will establish, according to the prosecutors, in November 2016, soon after the presidential election, Joffe emailed a colleague stating, I was tentatively offered the top cybersecurity job by the Democrats when it looked like they'd win. Anybody else makes this change? Not that big a deal to me, but John Solomon doing it and then resharing the article. I just kind of, I just feel like it's a calm. Um, I just, it is really, really seems like a calm to me. And I'm hoping it's a Rico law calm. I'm hoping that <laughs> we're about to hear Durham's about to drop a Rico indictment. The day after Solomon does this, Garland testifies in front of the House, I believe. Was it the House? It was the House, right? No, the Senate. After seeing Herridge report this, I went and checked the uh, the transcript for the interview or for the appearance, and I searched Durham, I searched Special, I searched Council. Um, this is the only comment that Garland made in regard to John Durham, which I kind of found peculiar. I would have expected more questions about Durham. But Senator Kennedy asked, I'd like to know why Mr. Sussman, a private citizen, had a special badge to get him into the FBI and the Department of Justice, and if there are other people out there who have special badges. This goes back to the Sussman trial and us learning that Sussman held his access to a... uh, Skiff that was at uh, Perkins Coie and he had an FBI badge and all these things. And Garland responds on the particular question about Sussman. I think we are going to have to wait until Mr. Durham finishes his report, which should be relatively soon. I certainly do not want to interfere with him in any way. And he is the only one who would know the answers to that. On the more general question, I can certainly ask my team to look into how lawyers have special badges. So let's let's break down this answer. 
in regards specifically to Michael Sussman, we have to wait for Durham to finish his report. He's the one who would have the answer to that. In fact, he says that he's the only he's the only one, doesn't he? He is the one. Okay, he is the one who would know the answer. That makes me wonder if Sussman shouldn't have had that, and there's something going on. Like somebody's about to get somebody's going to be in trouble for uh, Sussman having it. On Durham in the report, it says Mr. Durham finishes his report, which should be relatively soon. Guys, that is wide open. That is wide open. Many are interpreting this that, oh, that means Durham is going to any day now, he's going to drop his report. Could be. Could be. But relatively soon. Okay, let's put this in a different context. If uh, you and your spouse are having a conversation and they ask you, when are you going to fix the sink in the bathroom? And you respond relatively soon. Does your, does your spouse accept that that means it's going to happen within the next day or two? Week? Month? Relatively soon is so ambiguous. It's so wide open. Relative to what? Honey, when are you going grocery shopping? Relatively soon. When are you going to mow the lawn? Relatively soon. What does that mean? <laughs> relatively soon. <laughs> relative. What do you mean relatively soon? Relative to when he began? Relative, so he began the investigation years ago? So if he comes out with a report a year from now? Well, relative to when the beginning, to when he started, that would be soon, right? Relative to this hearing, think about think about how this has gone with this with Durham and the report. In October, we were told Durham's report is going to be coming up anytime now, maybe before the midterms. November, we were told. Durham is working on his report right now. It'll be out very soon. December, we were told Durham is working on his report. He should be done with it before the end of the year. January, we were told Durham is, uh, we had that big times hit piece telling us that Durham and Barr are crooked and he's working on his report and he's a complete failure and his report shouldn't be made public because it's full of disinformation and we need to investigate Durham. Garland needs to shut it down and just bury everything. Uh, February, no talk of Durham, really. And then now we hear, oh, relatively soon he'll be done with his report. So we've had February, we're in March, February, January, December, November, October. That's six months of media trying to tell us that Durham is going to come out with a report any day now and be done. And I'm going to tell you that what I expect 
is that Durham's going to drop more indictments. That's what I think. But if it's a report, then I expect it'll be an absolutely catastrophic report. I don't think it'll just be an end cap or, or bookend. I don't think it'll just be a, a summary report and a rehash of things he's already put in filings and, you know, it'll just go away. I don't think that's the kind of report he'll produce. I think he'll produce a report that is alters the political landscape. I think he'll produce a report that'll be massively impactful on the FBI justice department on politicians, on the, the DNC, I think I think it'll be absolutely massive. I think it'll be the Horowitz report and the Mueller Special Counsel report times five. Um, and I think that if he if that's what's next, Durham is going to issue a report. It'll be his final report, and then he's done. Then I think he'll hand off investigations to other prosecutors, and they will pursue prosecutions after he's done. Right. Um, I still think that's maybe what's going on with McGonagall in the SDNY. But I want to point something out that I think is worth keeping in mind. When people talk about Durham and his report, they take it as if there's a Durham report, that means it's final and he's done. He's finished. But according to the charging document that gives Durham the authority to do what he's doing. It says in addition to a confidential report required by 28 CFR 600.8, the special counsel to the maximum extent possible and consistent with the law and the policies and practices of the department of justice shall submit to the attorney general, a final report and such interim reports as he deems appropriate in a form that will permit public dissemination. So we have three kinds of reports right here. A confidential report that's required by the special counsel um, code right here. A final report to the AG and interim reports as he deems appropriate. Three types of reports. The media never talks about it that way. When they mention Durham report, they just mention it as it'll be the final one and he'll be done. And what I am really, really praying is happening is that talk of Durham issuing a report is being mistaken for a final report when it's, when it's actually an interim report. And that he is about to head fake a bunch of people. And the fake news is about to be caught with their pants down again or their heads up their butts because they're thinking it's a final report and it turns out to be just an interim report. He's not done. Here's a report on what he's uncovered so far. And then he drops some indictments. That's what I'm praying is going on. But I got to say, whichever it is, I'm not going to be upset. I would be I would have some I would have some disappointment if Durham issues a final report and he is actually done. But I would also be really really excited to tear into his report and see what we can extract out of it and see what it leads to. Um 
So like if it's a if he, he does come out with a final report, let's say next week, Durham issues a final report and shuts down his special counsel office. I'll be disappointed. I will. But I'll also be really excited to read the report and to see what the effects of it are. But I lean towards him not being done. I think he's got some more indictments to come. But it's possible. It's possible he's just going to hand he's going to hand the work off to other prosecutors and he's going to issue a report and go enjoy some Red Sox games. It whichever it is I'm not th- I'm not that worried about it cuz I feel like nothing can stop what is coming and it's part of the plan. Okay. I there were some rumble rants I missed. Sorry about that. I wanted to finish that segment before I before I grabbed them. Buster Lou says that was me on Twitter. Thank you for the rumble rant. Yes, it was. Catbird girl. Thank you very much. How generous of you. They say, I have no rant other than thank you, Kyle, for keeping us informed. I look forward to your lives, even if I have to watch labor later. Well, thank you very much, Catbird girl. That's very, very generous of you. And I appreciate it. Yeah, it could be April fools. I see people mentioning April fools. There's a reason Trump's been saying it. And it's either to do with the Manhattan DA or the Durham report or both, or maybe something we haven't thought of. Jason says, how long did the first American revolution span anyway? Like 15 years? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like it was less than 15 years. I think it was less than 15 years. Yeah, it was eight years. 75 to 1783. Well, well, this says 1765 to 1791. I guess it depends on when you start counting. So by this measure, it's a lot longer than 15. But the actual war, war, uh, 75 to 83. Dude, okay. Uh, Yorko7 says they were joking about Durham that Durham will drop during Gart, man. I actually hope he doesn't do that because that would blow my, that would blow everything up for me. <laughs> Although, I mean, I guess it would be fun for me to just do a live reading of the, indi- whatever indictment he drops a report. I can do a live reading at Gart and ramble on about it, but I, I don't know. I would, I would hope that he doesn't do that. <laughs> it would distract me from the entire weekend. That's selfish of me, though. Um, Jason says, do the executive orders in place, Durham could conceivably hand some RICO off to the military, right? No. I don't... No, I don't see how he does that. Because they would have to be... In order for the military to 
in order for this to come anything, any of these people to be charged with crimes and investigated by the military, they would have to violate the military criminal criminal justice act, the military code of criminal justice, whatever. So, and I don't, I don't see, I haven't found evidence of that. Um, I, I just haven't found evidence of them violating military law. Evidence of them violating federal law, yeah, but evidence of them violating military law, no. So I don't see how I don't see how Durham Durham's work translates to anybody ending up in a military court. I do see how Durham's work can take evidence from the military that the military could have some evidence like um that they've picked up because there's a lot of counter intel stuff going on and uh whatnot so i could see how they could feed information to him but i don't see how someone who is a target of durham ends up falling under the yeah ucmj i don't see how someone ends up following falling into the ucmj so not sure all right let's talk about um epstein because Something interesting. U.S. Virgin Islands has a case against J.P. Morgan Chase, and this is different from the other cases against J.P. Morgan Chase and Deutsche Bank, um, which are filed by groups of of Jane Doe's. This one is the one out of U.S. Virgin Islands, the one where the uh, attorney general was fired after she brought the case, and everybody thought they were trying to cover it up, but it doesn't seem like it. Um they're going pretty hard. And the Epstein estate is who the target is here or is one of the targets. And they've notified Jane Doe or notified her counsel that they've located materials within the Epstein media that may be responsive to her subpoenas. Um, there is concern though, that the media they have found media being like videotapes, uh, photos, things like that may contain some some uh, abusive imagery. They're calling it CSAM, C-S-A-M. So counsel for the U.S. Virgin Islands, Jane Doe 1 and the Epstein estate, are asking Judge Rakoff to approve a protocol for reviewing this material. It's, an, it's, a, big, it's a big problem that they have some material. So what's going on here is the Epstein estate has files from Epstein including videos and photographs and they've been subpoenaed for them and need to provide them to the court and to the uh, council on the other side. But they think there's some child imagery. That's a problem. So they've come up with a protocol for how they can, take a look at this stuff. And I find it kind of interesting to consider this because it's a, they find some, if they find, if this, they do find this stuff, it proves what we've been saying about the Epstein and Maxwell's enterprise, right? That they were, do, this is what they were engaged in this kind of stuff. Um, and it'll also help the Jane Doe. So it's, it's like vulgar and horrible as it would be for this stuff to exist. I think that Jane Doe's would appreciate it being found because 
it would help them make their case that they were in fact abused. If that makes sense, it's evidence of their abuse that they're claiming happened at, at the hand of Epstein and Maxwell. So the protocol they've come up with to deal with this illegal material, which is illegal to possess and illegal to share is one, the Epstein estate shall review the media to determine its responsiveness to the subpoenas that have been issued by Jane Doe one and other parties. If during the course of that review, the Epstein estate sees a particular recording that appears to contain possible CSAM, which is CP, it shall promptly stop further review of that recording and notify the FBI or other such agency or entity as the FBI may direct. No CSAM shall be copied or transmitted to another party except as directed by the FBI or other government agency. Three, if no CSAM is observed in the review, the responsive media will be provided to the Council for Jane Doe 1 and the government in response for a relevant subpoena. To the extent responsive media is identified prior to the identification of possible CSAM, such materials also will be produced to Council. Tell you what. Wouldn't it be interesting if some of this media contains not just abuse, evidence of abuse, but evidence of who else engaged in it besides Epstein and Maxwell, such as politicians and businessmen and other people. Wouldn't it be interesting if them finding this material, the U.S. Virgin Islands, subpoenaing for this and the Jane Doe subpoenaing the estate for these videos and images. Wouldn't it be interesting if the result of them, them doing that is that more people get charged because out of this case, they found evidence of politicians and businessmen engaging in these criminal acts. And then those people get charged. Also, in this case, a trial date has been set. It is 10-23-2023. So there's some other interesting dates here, but the trial is supposed to happen late October of this year. So I just, you know that, you know that the Epstein, the Epstein and Maxwell kept blackmail material on people. So I just have this thought, what if the material that the estate is going to be reviewing ends up being that blackmail material, and then they have to turn it over to the FBI. It should be really interesting. Okay. Next segment. Emerson Biggins says, Kyle, who's responsible for bringing charges of treason? Treason can be charged. It's federal. Um, it doesn't have to be the military. Treason is. Uh... Oh, there it was. Treason. 
It's 18 USC 2381. And it's federal. It's federal code. So if, I mean, if there's tree, if there's somebody's guilty of treason or can be credibly accused of it, then John Durham can bring that charge. It doesn't have, the military doesn't have to be the one who brings treason. It's the federal government, the federal prosecutors can bring that charge. So Johnny says, scroll up and read my comment, please. Okay, Johnny. Uh, good morning, Sammy. Romeo y Julieta is good. That's a good cigar. Johnny Pulaski says, we are under military maritime law currently. Look at our American flags. They have the gold braid. I'm sorry, man, but that's not that's not accurate. I know that thinking is, is around, but it's it's not. It's not right. <laughs> uh, I don't know any other way to say it. I know a lot of people push that idea, but it's not accurate. All right. My favorite news from yesterday, probably. Samuel Bankman Freed has been hit with another indictment. This is a superseding indictment and superseding indictments happen when someone who has already been indicted, but is still under investigation after having been indicted. Um, when more charges are found, more criminal activity is found during the course of that. And so the government says, or the prosecutor says, okay, we're going to bring another indictment on top of the one we already brought because we found evidence of more crimes. Um, and that is what has happened to Samuel Bankman freed. Samuel Bankman freed. Let's see. I have 40. Okay, I have some time. I can't read the whole indictment, but y'all probably don't need me to uh, anyway. Um, so <laughs> let, me, let me, well, I'll, go, I'll stick with my thread. So Samuel Bateman Freed used FTX customer funds and he misappropriated them and he used them to fund trading and he used them to uh fund acquisitions and venture investment and finance and 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 and, and to unlawfully contribute to political influence campaign political campaigns remember when remember when this FTX scandal first br broke and all the black pillars and doomers were telling us that nothing would happen to him and remember when when he did get indicted, all the doomers and black pillars were saying that, well, they won't go after him for his political contributions. They won't go after him for any of the donations he made. They'll just go after him for the wire fraud and that stuff. And then remember when they did go after him for those things, they said, well, he's just going to get away with it. Um, they're just going to bury his crimes. None of that is happening. <laughs> None of that is happening. Uh, so they found more. They found more crimes related to political influence from SBF and his executives. And they found that 
Part of his political influence campaign involved flooding the political system with tens of millions of dollars in illegal contributions to both Democrats and Republicans made in the names of others in order to obscure the true source of the money and to evade federal election law. In addition, in or about 2021, Bankman Freed authorized and directed a bribe of at least $40 million to one or more Chinese government officials. The purpose of the bribe was to influence and induce one or more Chinese government officials to unfreeze certain Alameda accounts containing over a billion dollars in cryptocurrency, which had been frozen by Chinese authorities. Bankman Freed and others sought to regain access to the assets to fund Alameda trading activity in order to assist Bankman Freed and Alameda in obtaining and retaining business. So Chinese law enforcement froze these crypto trading accounts in early 2021. The value of those two accounts was approximately $1 billion. It appears a $40 million bribe was sent in November of 2021 to one or more Chinese officials. In or around early 2021, Chinese law enforcement authorities froze certain Alameda trading accounts on two of China's largest cryptocurrency exchanges. Together, they contained about a billion dollars. The SBF understood that the accounts had been frozen by Chinese authorities as part of an ongoing investigation of a particular Alameda trading counterparty. So, the Chinese were investigating... Alameda, and by extension, SBF. And they saw fit to freeze their accounts. It's pretty interesting. I wonder what they found, and I wonder who this counterparty is. After the accounts were frozen, SBF, the defendant, and others operating at his direction considered and tried numerous methods to unfreeze the accounts or otherwise regain access to the cryptocurrency in the accounts, including retaining attorneys to lobby or otherwise advocate in China for Alameda's funds to be unfrozen, communicating with the Chinese exchanges and opening new accounts on the Chinese exchanges, using the personal identifying information of several individuals unaffiliated with FTX or Alameda, and attempting to transfer cryptocurrency from the frozen accounts to the fraudulent accounts in an effort to circumvent Chinese authorities. After months of failed attempts to unfreeze the accounts, Samuel Bankman Freed discussed with others and ultimately agreed to and directed a multi-million dollar bribe to seek to unfreeze the accounts. In particular, Bankman Freed authorized and directed the illicit transfer of cryptocurrency intended to induce and influence one or more Chinese government officials to unfreeze the accounts. Following Bankman Freed's authorization and direction, an Alameda employee sent cryptocurrency payment instructions for at least a portion of the bribe payment to other Alameda employees, including at least one employee located in the United States. As a result, in or about 2021, Bankman Freed caused a bribe payment of cryptocurrency then worth $40 million to be transferred from Alameda's main trading account to a private cryptocurrency wallet at or around the time the $40 million bribe, the accounts were unfrozen. 
After confirmation that the accounts were unfrozen, Bankman-Fried authorized the transfer of additional tens of millions of dollars in cryptocurrency to complete the bribe. After the accounts were unfrozen and at the direction of Bankman-Fried, Alameda used the unfrozen cryptocurrency to fund additional Alameda trading activity. I want to know who the employee located in the U.S. is. And I want to know who the Chinese officials are that he bribed that could unfreeze those accounts. And I want to know if they're being held account in China. I want to know if there's a, if, (coughs) pardon me. (coughs) I want to know if there's a connected law enforcement action in China. Because it sounds like China is not too happy with SBF and FTX um, since they were freezing their accounts, right? All right, now this. As he used Alameda to siphon off FTX's customer funds and deploy them for political causes, SBF became one of the largest publicly reported political donors for the 2022 midterm elections. But his effort to influence politics did not stop there. To avoid certain contributions being publicly reported in his name, Bankman-Fried conspired to and did have certain political contributions made in the names of two other FTX executives, CC1 and CC2. So co-conspirator one, co-conspirator two. Those contributions were made directly to candidates in the names of those FTX executives, but with FTX and Alameda funds. SBF perpetuated his campaign finance scheme, at least in part to improve his personal standing in Washington, D.C., increase FTX's profile, and curry favor with candidates that could help pass legislation favorable to FTX and Bankman-Fried's personal agenda, including legislation concerning regulatory oversight over FTX and its industry. To accomplish these goals, Bankman-Fried caused substantial contributions to be made in support of candidates of both major political parties and across the political spectrum. He was funding the Uniparty, and nobody should ever forget that. SBF was bribing and buying influence with the Uniparty. That's what he wanted to do. He himself is was lefty, and one of his executives was lefty, and another executive was more conservative. But they weren't MAGA. And they weren't honest. And they weren't... They they just wanted to buy influence with whoever they could, and I've talked on this show before about how they would give money to two the people. They would give money in certain races. They gave money to the Democrat and the Republican. If the race was tight and they didn't know who could win, they would give money to both candidates so they would have some influence with whoever won. If the race was lopsided and one or the other was pretty sure to win, they would give money to the winner. They just wanted to buy influence with the Uniparty. Freed didn't want, Bateman Freed didn't want his name attached to Republican candidates, though. So he used someone else to give in those, to give to Republican candidates. 
Freed conspired and to and did have contributions made in the names of CC1 and CC2 to Republican candidates that he didn't want his name attached to. As part of this scheme, contributions were coordinated to be made in the names of two FTX straw donors to candidates they did not necessarily support or know. These straw donations were instead made for purposes of furthering the political agenda of Samuel Bankman Freed while providing him cover to avoid being associated with certain contributions and concealing that the source of the contributions was in fact Alameda. SBF and his conspirators selected CC1 to be the face of Bankman Freed's and FTX's more left-leaning spending. CC1 ultimately became at least a name, one of the largest Democratic donors in the 2022 midterm elections and made donations to further Bankman Freed's agenda that CC1 otherwise would not have made. Likewise, it was a preference of Samuel Bankman Freed to keep contributions to Republicans dark. In keeping with that preference, CC2, who publicly aligned himself with conservatives, made contributions to Republican candidates that were directed by Samuel Bankman Freed and funded by Alameda. Now, in total, well, I'll just read it. In total, between in or about fall of 2021 and November 2022, SBF and the two FTX executives, CC1 and CC2, collectively made millions of dollars in contributions, including in hard money contributions to federal candidates from both major political parties. And in total, SBF and his co-conspirators made over 300 political contributions, totaling tens of millions of dollars that were unlawful because they were made in the name of a straw donor or paid for with corporate funds. The Doomers and the Black Pillars told me that the FBI and the DOJ would never pay attention to this. Right. They said that Samuel Bankman Freed was going to get away from the, for, with this and that the DOJ and FBI don't care about election fraud and election um, manipulation or uh, dark money going into races. They said they don't care about it. Well, black pillars and doomers are wrong again. Now, this is a. Uh, I don't even remember how many counts he got hit with. He was already hit with like a 12 count indictment. How many counts was this one? This new one. How many counts? 13. Okay. So if you look at the one of the count 13, The grand jury further alleges from at least in or about January 2021 up to and including in or about February 2022 in an offense begun and committed out of the jurisdiction of any particular state or district. SBF, the defendant and others known and unknown, at least one of whom was first brought to and will be arrested in the Southern District of New York. Willfully and knowingly combined, conspired, confederated, and agreed together with each other to commit an offense against the United States, to wit, to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So, someone's supposed, someone's supposed to be arrested. Someone new. 
we already know that, um, in fact, let me open this. We already know of several people who have been arrested in connection with the uh, FTX uh, conspiracy. By the way, CC1 and CC2, I believe, I believe they are Nishad Singh and Ryan Salame. Or Salame, I don't know. But I believe that those are, that's who they're referring to. Those are the two executives they're referring to with CC1 and CC2. But there were other individuals that have been indicted with this. And let me grab, let me go to my true social and grab it there because I remember I listed them all off there. And I want to make sure I remember all their names correctly. Uh, is it there? No. I posted a, there it is. There it is. So, so far in this case, <coughs> SBF was arrested and pled not guilty. Caroline Ellison was arrested. She pled guilty and flipped on SBF. Gary Wang pled guilty and flipped on SBF. Nishad Singh pled guilty and I think possibly flipped. Now, Ryan Salami, he's the person who tipped off the investigators before SBF was arrested he flipped against them because he informed on him and, and kind of triggered a lot of this stuff. He hasn't been arrested. So I don't know if he'll ever be indicted. I don't know if he's a cooperating conspirator or something like maybe he's not going to be charged with anything. Maybe he will be charged, but he's going to get a super sweet deal because he's cooperating with the investigation fully. And so they haven't indicted him yet, but that's coming at some point. Um, I was betting when someone asked, I was thinking, yeah, I bet Ryan Salame is the next person who's going to be indicted here. That is the imminent indictment that's referenced here. But now I don't think so because this has to do with foreign corrupt practices act. See, that's the, that's what this count is anti-bribery and foreign corrupt practices act. So I think the person they're talking about that they're going to bribe that they're going to arrest is the person involved with bribing Chinese officials. And remember this right here. SBF authorized and directed an Alameda employee to send cryptocurrency payment instructions or at least a portion of the bribe to other Alameda employees, including at least one employee in the U.S., I think it's that one employee in the U.S. that is mentioned right here that is going to be arrested. And yesterday I was checking, I was checking uh, all around for this arrest, any news of this arrest, and I never found any. And I'm going to go ahead and check now to see if it's come out. Um, because I'm expecting nope. It hasn't. Let me see. Let me check Inner City Press, who is awesome. Such a good follow. Really appreciate the work this guy does. No, nothing new. Although he does, he just uploaded something about U.S. versus Pross Michelle. That's the um, one MDB trial. Um, 
he wants, I'll go ahead and play this because it relates to, oh man, reload it. Oh, come on Twitter. Okay. So something interesting, I'll just go ahead and tell y'all. So something really interesting is going on with, I mean, the Pross Michelle trial is super interesting. Jury trial started yesterday or jury selection started yesterday. And then today the trial starts. I would love to cover every moment of it, but it's not televised. And I'm, I, I want to get the transcripts, but I'm not, it would, it's going to end up costing, it would end up costing hundreds of thousands of dollars for me to buy these transcripts and to cover them like I did with the Danchenko case. So I'm not going to do that, but I am paying attention to this trial and I'm trying to decide how I may just do like a weekly recap or something that come uh, of what comes out of it or whatnot. But as you can see right here is what he's saying. Joe Lowe, one of the defendants was paying off people in the Obama campaign. The one of DB scandal is absolutely huge, absolutely huge it involves celebrities and political candidates and the president of China and, Celeb, like, uh, man, it's just massive. But it also involves Guo Wengui, aka Miles Guo. And Miles Guo is being held right now after his charges, no bail, no bond for him. They don't, he's a flight risk, and the U.S. doesn't want him to get, get bonded out of prison. They want to hold him in prison. But Pross Michelle wants Guo to be either bonded out or extradited to the district of uh, DC because he wants miles Guo to appear in the trial because miles Guo is involved in the one MDB scandal as well. And Pross Michelle wants him to appear on his behalf as a witness. So we could see something interesting happen here where um, Guo isn't let out of prison while he's awaiting trial but is extradited to DC for however many days to appear at this trial with Pross Michelle. And that would be some really interesting testimony. Um, one MD, one MDB is a fascinating, fascinating case. And I started to um, cover some of it last week ahead of, ahead of the trial. And I ended up not doing it because other news came up. And now I'm part of, part of me is kind of regretting that. Um, so anyway, you may see me come out, start paying more attention to this trial. It connects to, it connects to so much, uh, so many scams. And I don't think the media, the regular media is going to be covering it much. All right. I can't believe I got through all that stuff as quickly as I did. Nice. Um, Crypto firm Binance is being sued by the CFTC. All right. Dawson S. Field, a must follow. The U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission is suing Binance and its CEO for allegedly breaking and trading derivatives rules. If you're not aware of Binance, they're the world's largest crypto firm founded in Shanghai by Chang Ping Zhao, a Canadian originally from China. They're now headquartered in the Cayman Islands, a corruption safe haven. But it may still be operating primarily from China. 
Binance is accused of knowingly operating an illegal exchange in the U.S. while permitting money laundering on their exchange in order to profit from illegal movement of money by unidentified account holders. Binance recently hired Trump's former accounting firm, Mazars, from France to audit their reserves following the collapse of FTX. About two weeks later, Mazars decided to stop working with crypto companies. Interesting. U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is also investigating Binance and every other crypto exchange serving customers in the U.S. The corruption in the entire industry is being exposed and prosecuted. CFTC, SEC, IRS, and DOJ have all been focused on them. And it's just like I was saying on Monday how like every week there's some sort of prosecution or – some sort of deal with somebody involved in COVID fraud or PPP loan fraud, something related to the lockdowns and COVID assistance, right? It seems like every week there's something going on with crypto exchanges or crypto hacking or whatever, people getting busted for it. There's a lot of corruption involved in crypto because it's a really, well, it's a very uh, appealing way to launder money and to commit various types of fraud. And all of these entities are cracking down on it. DOJ is also criminally investigating Binance's conduct, including allowing sanctions violations with Iran and Russian accounts, in addition to laundering cryptocurrency for drug cartels, organized crime, and swamp creatures. They helped widen, they helped every variety of scum on the planet evade sanctions and launder money to hide criminal activities. Binance shut down some of these markets in 2021 as DOJ was investigating them for criminal sanctions to enable money laundering and sanctions violations. Good stuff. Is Binance going to collapse next? I don't know. All right. Last thing I want to cover, but I'm not going to get into it right now. I think I'm going to save it for the devolution power hour tonight talk about it with John, the, the EO expert. Um, but Biden signed a new e- executive order the other day. It's executive order on the, on prohibition on use by United States government, a commercial spyware that poses risk to national security. So Biden white house issues, executive order on commercial spyware also confirms over 50 U.S. government personnel suspected of being targeted with Pegasus. Investment fuels spyware proliferation. A lot of that is predicated on the juicy dream of the U.S. government as the ultimate customer. The new spyware executive order says to mercenary spyware vendors and backers, decision time, either stop contributing to proliferation right now or lose our number. Biden's spyware EO closes the door for vendors if their spyware has, one, been used against the U.S. government, has counterintelligence or foreign intel risk, abused for repression, used on U.S. Americans, sold to governments that systematically do political oppression. For each component of the spyware EO, I'm going to relate it to something concrete. By the way, this thread is by um, John Scott Railton or JS Railton on Twitter. The first component, wait, no, 
let's call it the, okay, I'm going to relate something concrete. Let's call it the Pegasus factor. Would provision result in blocking U.S. government from purchasing spyware from NSO for operational use? First, spyware EO component, national security and counterintelligence, clearly derived from recent experiences with the National Security Office. Pegasus factor. Yes, the ESO would likely block NSO as a vendor. So, no more Pegasus. Second, abuses. This is a reflection on the broad spectrum of spyware harm that happens, but also in critically situations where vendors would expect that their product, once sold, will inevitably be abused. I initially expected the spyware EO to look like a allow, deny, aka blacklist of spyware sellers. But EO's conduct-based definitions equals constant shell games of vendors and corporate identities being blunted. It even applies to companies that haven't been formed yet, and that's probably better. Lots of spyware companies absolutely know what they are doing. What's especially interesting is the term remove to describe risk, not the milk toast and unverifiable mitigate. The spyware CEO, the spyware EO that Biden just signed is saying, cancel the contract. Reports in the past that U.S. government entities may have occasionally facilitated spyware purchases and acquisition by other governments. If the spyware and abuse, NATSEC, and counterintelligence triggers are met, that door now closes. So how does the U.S. government know if spyware vendors hit the spyware EO's triggers? Well, the EO contains a robust set of reporting requirements around misuses from the intel community and procurement reporting. Seems intended to prevent vendors from slipping through the cracks. The use of the term operational is interesting and creates a carve-out for things like testing and analysis. The analogy, U.S. government can buy an anti-tank missile from a shady entity to test it against armor, but can't reward the vendor by equipping the whole military with them. This spyware EO that Biden just signed is the first comprehensive action by any government on spyware. It was clearly drafted to pump the brakes on proliferation and is written with a good understanding of the slippery nature of the industry. It closes many loopholes. Whenever the U.S. government regulates, there's always temptation to speculate about protectionism for American companies. But reading this spyware EO, these provisions hit U.S.-based spyware companies just as hard as they hit as they meet the triggers and contribute to proliferation. This is good. Every government wants to wants to not tie their own hands too tightly. So there is a waiver provision, but what's interesting is how restricted this is. It's a very high bar. The spyware EO is not designed to be easily circumvented by someone in a corner of the U.S. government bureaucracy. I've spent over a decade researching commercial spyware. This spyware the spyware EO is one of the most consequential actions to blunt proliferation that I've seen a government take. While the spyware EO addresses federal procurement, it doesn't hit state and local agencies. 
Well, it's an executive order. And we know these are targets for sales by NSO Group and others. This is going to be a really important area in the coming years. While the U.S. government is a big, juicy prize, European governments are another core vendor target. And Germany is an example of a country on the wrong side of history on this. Hopefully, the spyware EO provides a better model for how to not reward the worst of the worst. I expect the spyware EO to immediately chill investor comfort with reckless spyware vendors. <clears throat> Some prospectus are probably hitting the shredder right now, but also need to see other directed disincentives for U.S.-based investors that fuel harmful spyware proliferation. It's remarkable to see Joe Biden and the White House leaning this hard into this issue. This is what global leadership looks like. It also would not have happened without tremendous work from civil society and many brave spyware victims coming forward year after year. This is weird. Guys, this is weird. Joe Biden and this spyware EO. What the world? I think, I mean, I think, I think this is a, uh, I think it's a really strong example that Biden isn't working for the swamp anymore. I think this is a really strong example that Biden does not work for the swamp. Not not anymore. Because if Biden was working for the swamp, he wouldn't put the CEO out. The he would do the opposite. The swamp wants government spyware. The swamp the, the swamp wants a ton of it because they're going to get kickbacks on these contracts and they're going to uh, be able to spy on their enemies and spy on the American public and spy on competitors and they're going to they're going to spy on all sorts of people and gather data. And then they're going to sell that to um, others. So they're going to spy on this corporation and sell that information to other corporations. They're going to spy on like, like spyware is big business in the swamp. And for the Biden administration to come out with this really strong executive order. I mean, I like, I was reading, I was like, I can't believe that this is Biden. My friend Kim Sachs here, who's an awesome follow she was like, I don't know why, but this EO is breaking my brain. <laughs> like, this is like, how, how is it that Biden is the one who is putting something out like this? I got to tell you guys, I mean, I've been, I was, I've said it before on this show. Joe Biden does not work for the swamp. Maybe he did. I think he did for a lot of years. But he stopped working for the swamp in or about 2018, in my opinion. And I think I saw Mermaid Miss K is, was in the chat earlier. I don't know if she's still here. Good morning to her. And I know she agrees with me. <laughs> uh, like, th- like, 
Biden flipped. Like, yeah, there she is. Mermaid says Biden flipped in 2019 right before he announced. That is right. That is right. And here you go. Here's an example. All right. I um that's what I got for you today. I saw some rumble rants that, that came in earlier. And I want to scroll back up and hope hopefully I can catch them. Howard, thank you very much. Says best program to calibrate our situational awareness. Salut, Kyle. Thank you very much. Much appreciated, man. Jason says, and thank you, Jason. He says, why does something with Obama campaign and the Hollywood Stooges point at CSA and the witches coven for me? Um, Okay, you're talking about the 1MDB scandal. Dude, there's so much to the 1MDB scandal. There is so much. Um, I have I have time right now. By the way, the name of it is a spoof on um, the. Uh, it's a it's a spoof on IMDb, Internet Movie Database. I have I have some time, so let me. I'll just review with everybody what the One MDB scandal is. So. The real name of it is the One Malaysia Development Bearhad Scandal. Often referred to as 1MDB Scandal or 1MDB, it describes a corruption, corruption, bribery, and money laundering conspiracy in which Malaysian sovereign wealth fund One Malaysia Development Bearhad was systematically embezzled with assets diverted globally by the perpetrators of the scheme. It had global scope implicated institutions and individuals in politics, banking, and entertainment, and sparked criminal investigations across a number of nations. The 1MDB scandal has been described as one of the world's greatest financial scandals and declared by the U.S. DOJ as the largest kleptocracy case to date. And that was in 2016. It probably still is the largest kleptocracy, but um, yeah. So in 2015... A document leak reported in The Edge, Sarawak Report, and The Wall Street Journal showed that Malaysia's then-Prime Minister, Najib Razak, had channeled over $2.6 billion, which is in uh, Malaysian money, which is about $700 million U.S. money, into his personal bank accounts from 1MDB, a government-run strategic development company. The alleged mastermind of the scheme was Joe Lowe, not J-Lo, Jolo. He was central in the movement of 1MDB funds internationally through shell companies and offshore bank accounts. USDOJ later found that more than $4.5 billion was diverted from 1MDB by Lowe and other conspirators, including officials from Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. These were used to purchase luxury items and properties, including super yacht equanimity and finance the American film company, red granite pictures and its production of the Wolf of wall street. How hilarious is it that the Wolf of wall street was financed by this scandal? When MDB funds supported lavish lifestyles for low Najib and his wife, Rosma Mansour <coughs> and established Najib's stepson, Riza Aziz, in Hollywood. Attempts were also made 
for embezzled funds to be put towards political donations and lobbying in the United States. That's right. A former Trump fundraiser was charged with allegedly, allegedly lobbying the U.S. to drop the inquiry. And I'm trying to remember, is that is that Broidy? Um, no. Yeah, Broidy. Elliot Broidy that we talked about last week on uh, Devolution Power Hour. The revelations became a major political scandal in Malaysia, triggering protests and backlash. After several Malaysian investigations were opened, Najib responded by dismissing several of his critics from the government positions, including his deputy, uh, Muyadeen Yassin, and Attorney General Abdul Ghani Patel. Charges against Najib were subsequently dismissed. Among Najib's critics was former ally and Malaysian fourth prime minister, Mahathir Mohamed, who chaired the Malaysian citizen declaration, bringing together political figures, blah, 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 blah. Outside of Malaysia, investigations into financial and criminal activity related to 1MDB opened in at least six countries. According to its publicly filed account, 1MDB had nearly, oh yeah, by the way, I could show this to y'all, sorry. 1MDB had nearly $11.73 billion in debt by 2015. Some of this debt resulted from a $3 billion state-guaranteed 2013 bond issue led by the American investment bank Goldman Sachs, which had been reported to have received fees up to $300 million for the deal. Although the bank disputes this figure. Goldman Sachs was charged under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and agreed to pay $2.9 billion in a settlement to the DOJ. American rapper Pross, Michelle, that's who's on trial starting today in D.C., forming Goldman Sachs chairman Tim Leisner and fundraiser Elliot Broidy were among those charged in the U.S. in connection with 1MDB. By the way, Goldman Sachs banker was just sentenced last week. I think he got 10 years for this. After 2018 election, the newly elected prime minister, Mohammed, reopened Malaysian investigation into the scandal. The Malaysian Immigration Department barred Najib and 11 others from leaving the country. Police seized more than 500 handbags, 12,000 pieces of jewelry worth about $270 million. It's the largest seizure of goods in Malaysian history. Najib was later charged with breach of trust, money laundering, and abuse of power, while alleged mastermind Joe Lowe by then an international figure was charged with money laundering. Najib was subsequently found guilty of seven charges connected to the SRC International, a 1MDB subsidiary, and was sentenced to 12 years. In September 2020, the alleged amount stolen from 1MDB was $4.5 billion, and the Malaysian government report, report listed 1MDB's outstanding debt at $7.8 billion. The government has assumed at 1MDB's debts, which include 30-year bonds issued until 2039. In August 2021, the United States had recovered and returned $1.2 billion of those funds. Now, it, there's more. There's much more. I probably shouldn't have even started this because I don't have time to get all into it. But what the scheme was, was the USD DOJ, as they describe it, there was three phases. In 2009, Najib and Lowe met with representatives in a private oil company, Petro Saudi, on a yacht in Monaco to discuss 1MDB's first investment. This included Saudi Royal Turkey bin Abdul al-Saud and Saudi National Tariq Obaid. During a sub subsequent visit to Saudi Arabia, Najib signed a $2.5 billion joint venture between Petro Saudi and 1MDB. The DOJ letter said that this was used as a pretense 
to move a billion dollars into a Swiss bank account. Imagine that. An additional $1.4 billion was then raised by Goldman Sachs in a bond issue and misappropriated into a bank account in Switzerland. An additional $1.3 billion from Goldman Sachs was diverted into bank accounts in Singapore. U.S. authorities say that Goldman Sachs, in particular Roger Ng, who that's the guy who just got, got uh, sentenced to 10 years, I think, were central with orchestrating that scheme, particularly the money laundering from the fund some of which, w- which was used to pay bribes to officials in Malaysia and the United Arab Emirates. And I want to find the next phase of where Pross Michelle. There we go. Oh, yeah, it is right here. More than $4 billion was stolen from 1MDB and spent on art, diamonds, and property. Joe Lowe allegedly used 1MDB funds to support a lavish lifestyle in the U.S., the DOJ traced $100 million from the Petro-Saudi deal to the purchase of properties in Hollywood and $40 million to apartments in New York. He established friendships with musician Swiss Beats. Never heard of him. Alicia Keys. I've heard of her. Pross Michel. Never heard of him until the scandal. Was pictured partying with socialite Paris Hilton and used funds to purchase luxury items from models Miranda Kerr and singer Elva Hisayo. Don't know who that is, with whom he was romantically involved. Hollywood film producing company Red Granite Pictures, co-founded by Riza Aziz and Joey McFarland in 2010, also reportedly received misappropriated funds. The DOJ suggested these were put towards the production of Wolf of Wall Street, Daddy's Home, and Dumb and Dumber 2. And by 2017, they'd seized the royalties from all three films. Joe Lowe was personally thanked in the credits of Wolf of Wall Street. Now, Pross Michelle, I want to I want to zero in since he's going on trial. I want to zero in on his on exactly what's going on with him as it relates to this. DOJ indicted Pross on May tenth, twenty nineteen, for his part in the criminal conspiracy with Malaysian financier Joe Lowe. The DOJ alleged that between June 2012 and November 2012, Michelle aided in the illegal transfer of approximately $865,000 from foreign entities into Barack Obama's 2012 presidential campaign. So, as I've been reading this about this 1MDB scandal, if any of you have been thinking, why should you care about this scandal that goes all the way back to 2009 and comes out of Malaysia and deals with these celebrities. That's why. $865,000 from foreign entities into Barack Obama's 2012 presidential campaign. The DOJ alleged that these funds were disguised as purportedly legitimate contributions, but were stolen from the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB. Ultimately, the DOJ alleged that $21 million in foreign campaign contributions were funneled into the 2012 U.S. presidential election to benefit candidate A, Obama. The Washington Post and New York Times identified him as Obama. In June 2021, 
Cross was charged by a federal grand jury for running a back-channel campaign to get the Trump administration to drop an investigation of Joe Lowe and the 1MDB investment company. He was also accused of advocating for the extradition of Chinese dissident Miles Guo from the United States. In the plea documents from former DOJ employee George Higginbotham, who's already been convicted for his role in this, Pross was accused of paying Republican fundraiser Elliot Broidy and others to have Guo extradited to China. Though unnamed in the filings, Pross is easily identified due to the linked cases and confirmation from sources close to the case. Pross vehemently and unequivocally denied accusations related to Higginbotham's case. As of 2021, due to the charges against him, Pross cannot travel internationally. In January 2022, the Fugees, that's the group he's with, canceled their planned international reunion tour, citing the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, we know it has a lot to do with this trial. Pross, Pross's trial is scheduled March 27th. It just started. So... That is why I look at this news of Pross Michelle going to trial and think, ooh, that's pretty interesting. And I sure with Twitter would let me play this update from uh, Inner City Press because he's really good. But it's not going to let me and I'm out of time. So if you guys are on Twitter or even if you're not, just use your browser Go check out Inner City Press. Bookmark his page. Bookmark it. He is very good. He is very, he does very good reporting, and I really appreciate it because often he's the only journalist in the courtroom reporting on this kinds of stuff. So, shout out to him. I really appreciate him. Okay. Now, before I go... Let me check out these Rumble rants. Sheikah, good morning. Thank you very much. She says, looking forward to the Durham show. Stay healthy so you can keep up. The team needs you. Thank you very much, Sheikah. And what is this? A monthly supporter. I didn't. This is new on Rumble. Interesting. Well, thank thank you very much, Sheikah. Um. All right. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. I need to tell y'all that once again, y'all are going to hate this. Y'all are going to absolutely hate this. Uh, once again, I won't be doing a show on Friday. I know I keep on taking off on Fridays for various reasons. One, like two weeks ago, it's because I had an event in my kid's school. Um, And then last Friday, I had a sick kid. By the way, the other kid is sick now. <laughs> um. Life of a parent. Uh, this Friday, there's a um, there's a field trip I'm going on with my kid. So um, it's one of those. It's for my my toddler. So we're going to a uh, like a children's museum type thing, and uh, his whole grade is going there. And so parents are you have to, in order for him to go, the parent has to go. So I'm going with him on a field trip to a children's museum, hanging out with some toddlers. That's what I'll be doing on Friday. Uh, if something drops, something, something really interesting drops, then I may, I may record a video on Thursday night. And really this kind of, 
this kind of opens me up to something I've been wanting to mention on the show for a while. There's, there's more and more events coming. Um, there's more and more stuff, more and more stuff going on with my kids. So they're, uh, they're both signed up for soccer now. Um, my oldest does piano and there's this, there's just more stuff coming up with my kids that is interfering with either when I do a live show or interfering with or taking away from the time frame that I would usually use to prepare for a live show together, news articles and plan out a show and research things. So, and then there's another change that's coming um, that I can't quite talk about yet, but it's really, really good news, but it's going to be a bit of a lifestyle change as far as my family, but it's really, really good news. So it's like, we're really excited about it, but it's going to change just some of the dynamics of how day-to-day life goes with my family. I'll tell you all about it when I can, but right now I can't, I can't tell you about it. Um, so what I've been thinking of is switching to doing recorded shows and uploading them, like have them go live in the, in the mornings. And what I don't like about that is that I really like doing these live shows because of you guys that are in chat, because you guys in chat contribute to the show as I'm doing it. And I like glancing over and seeing what you guys are talking about. Even when you're squirreling off on some other conversation that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But there's a, that's why I like live shows is because um, of, of the community that shows up in the mornings. Right. So I don't want to lose that, but I'm also thinking about, man, maybe it would be best if I switched to doing recorded shows and a live show became kind of the rare thing, you know, like defected is always going to be live. Um, devolution power hour is always going to be live. Um, that's so that, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking about is, uh, switching over to doing, more recorded shows, not like only doing recorded shows, but I don't know. I'm, um, it's just on my mind and I'm not saying I will do it. I'm just saying that like, there's, that's something that I'm trying to figure out because, um, as I'm adding more and more activities with my kids and they're getting older and then this change that's coming up soon, I'm just, I just see how it's eating into my preparation time and I'm seeing how often I'm having to cancel doing live shows and I hate canceling and it's making me think that I should, I should move over to more recorded shows. So anyway, I'm just throwing that out there and, uh, sometimes I need, sometimes I need to speak things. I need to say things in order to really think about them. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just tossing that out there. It's just something that's on my mind because I don't like canceling, but stuff, life happens. What can I say? Life happens. All right. God bless y'all. I hope you have a great week. Thank you all for your support. 
Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show, hit the thumbs up. <laughs> Michelle, <laughs> Michelle just said, just get less sleep. <laughs> yeah, I'm good at that, Michelle. I'm good at getting less and less sleep. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, uh, that'll work. Um, <laughs> all right. God, God bless y'all. Have a great, have a great day. If some, if something big happens, uh, y'all, y'all might see me go live on Thursday or Friday night or something like that to cover it. But otherwise I'll see you guys tonight on devolution power hour and then on defected on Sunday night. So y'all have a great one. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. I'll see you next time. <laughs>